0: So we're in Mark's Gospel, continuing our series, and we're in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read from verses 45 to 52. Um, I might be buzzing a little bit today. I had like eight sachets of instant Korean coffee, so I think I've had a little bit too much caffeine, but we'll see how we go. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52. I'll try not to talk too quickly. The Word of God reads, Immediately. Father, I pray as we continue our series in Mark uh, that you would prepare our hearts to not only be receptive to the sound of your voice through your word, but that we would be able to have an encounter with the risen Jesus through our service. That each week when we come together at 1.30, that we would come away having tasted of your goodness having felt the Spirit of God touch and shape our hearts to transform us to look more like our King. Father, as we look at this short passage, there's so many aspects that we can touch on, but Lord, I pray that we would come away having heard your voice and discerning what it is that you desire of us from this day forth. May you watch over the words of my mouth The meditations of my heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week we studied the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And it's a miracle that I mentioned appears in all four gospel accounts Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And one helpful way to study events like this that appear in multiple gospel accounts is to kind of collage all the details together. Because with these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're four snapshots, four eyewitness accounts of the things that happened in the ministry of Jesus. And so sometimes when you collage the details together, you find that certain details that aren't mentioned in certain gospels are mentioned in others, and it will just kind of give you different snapshots of uh, similar events. And that's going to be important for us today when we study the miracle of Jesus walking on water, which appears in Matthew Mark and John, not Luke's gospel, but Matthew, Mark, and John. Now, if you recall last week's sermon, Mark's gospel explained that 5,000 men came out to see Jesus in the desert. And um, if you were to take into account the women and children, it probably would have been about 15,000 at least. Some scholars believe it would have been in excess of 25,000 even. So it was a lot of people. And we studied how Jesus, upon seeing all these people, felt Great compassion for them. Because when he looked at these people, the passage said that he saw almost like sheep without a shepherd. Because when you think of the leadership that they were under in that day, remember the secular leadership that they had. Who was their local secular leader? It was King Herod, this pedophile, incestuous king that was married to his niece, I think, if I remember right. And Just a really messed up guy on all levels. And he was a guy, the secular leader that killed the final last great prophet, John the Baptist. So, in a secular leader, they don't really have much going for them. In terms of spiritual leadership, who were the spiritual leaders of the day? It was the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And these guys weren't interested in feeding people with spiritual food, they believed in a works salvation that you obey and you do good works to achieve right standing with God. And so instead of feeding these people with spiritual food that leads to life, they bound them with legalism, rule upon rule. And so spiritually, these people were shackled. They didn't have freedom in God. They were prisoners to the law. And so Jesus responds to their spiritual hunger by feeding them. And he does this by preaching And then he sees their physical hunger, and he physically feeds them by supernaturally multiplying five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, today's passage occurs straight after and begins in verse 45. And it says that immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. Immediately, he made them get into the boat there seems to be almost a shift in the mood because they just finished eating. They heard sermons. They had a meal together. They were probably all relaxed and maybe, I don't know, I get food, co- food comers when I eat, but maybe they were going through that. But there seems to be a shift in mood because suddenly things start to feel urgent. It almost feels like an emergency evacuation where Jesus is pushing his disciples onto the boat saying, you know, get out of here, get out of here now. You go first. I'll meet you on the other side. And he makes them leave towards this town called Bethsaida. Now, something interesting I want to point out. Jesus tells them in today's passage to go to the town of Bethsaida. But if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you collage all the details together, this miracle of the 5,000, the feeding of the 5,000, it actually occurs in Bethsaida. So the question arises as Jesus is trying to evacuate his disciples. What does it mean when he tells them to go to Bethsaida when they're in Bethsaida? And there's a few explanations that different scholars give. Some people believe that there were two cities called Bethsaida. Uh, I personally don't find that convincing because when you look at a New Testament map, you don't see two cities called Bethsaida. Um, I think the most logical explanation was probably that they were in the desert part of Bethsaida and Jesus was telling them to go into town. Kind of like, you know, I live in Blacktown. Like, I made fun of Mount Druitt. I'll make fun of Blacktown. I live in Blacktown. And it's like, you know, you live in Blacktown. And then you got the CBD in the, in the city. You know, I live in Blacktown. But if people in other parts of the world ask me, where, where, where are you from? I'll say I'm from Sydney, even though I'm from Blacktown. Uh, and so that's kind of, I think, what's going on. They're in the desert. And Jesus is telling them, go instead. Get in the boat. Go down the sea and I'll meet you in town later. But just, just get out of here now. But if they're going to go into town, wouldn't it be quicker to walk? And what's what, what's so urgent? Why does it feel like there's a shift in mood? Why does it feel like it's an emergency evacuation? And, you know, this is where collaging the details of the other Gospels uh, is going gonna, is gonna to be important because Mark's gospel doesn't actually tell us why. he doesn't. If you read through it, it doesn't tell us what was so urgent about this evacuation. But John's gospel does. After feeding the 5,000, John's gospel says in chapter 6, verses 14 to 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done feeding the 5,000, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself you have to remember the time that israel was that they were living in israel as a nation they had no independence they were living under the rule and oppression of the roman empire And it was like century after century, they were just under the oppression of one empire after, the, after another. It was the Babylonians and the Persians and the Greeks and now the Romans. And the Israelites knew that God had promised that one day after going through oppression from one empire after another, that one day God is going to send them a messianic king to give them freedom, to bring them salvation. But as they went from century to century, their understanding of what the messianic king would look like started to become distorted. Because God's design for the messianic king was so that he could bring freedom and salvation from sin. But the Jews had come to believe that the king, the messianic king, would bring them freedom and salvation from the Roman Empire to overthrow and destroy this empire. And so it was quite different. God's plan was for the king to come and die. The Jews' expectation was for the king to come and kill. Their hope was for, you know, a spirit, oh, well, God's hope rather, or well, God's plan was for a spiritual revival. But the Jews, they didn't want a spiritual revival. They wanted a secular revolution to overthrow the government. And because the Jews generally had this kind of sentiment in their hearts, uh, they saw the signs that Jesus performed. They saw five loaves and two fish multiply to feed, you know, 15, 25, I don't know how many people it was, let's say 25,000 people. And seeing this through their distorted understanding and expectation of what the Messiah would look like, they tried to take Jesus by force and make him their new warrior king so that he could become like, you know, their Alexander the Great, their Julius Caesar, They wanted Jesus to be their warrior king, to overthrow the Roman Empire. And so Jesus is, you know, his rescue mission, the whole purpose of his incarnation and coming into creation, this mission is in danger of being compromised. And so that's why in the opening verse of Mark's gospel, there's this sense of urgency. That's why it feels like an emergency evacuation as Jesus is urging his disciples, get in the boat, get out of here, I'll meet you on the other side, you head off first. And then after they leave, Jesus somehow manages to calm the crowd. I don't know how you calm 25,000 people, but he somehow manages to calm them and gets them to disperse. Now, when I see stuff like this, I try to imagine how frustrated would Jesus have been? Because if you think about it, he just spent an entire day not like a like a 40 minute sermon like I preach on Sundays but an entire day hours preaching to them from morning to evening preaching to them about the kingdom of god you know a full day of i am the king i'm here to save you from sin and then the 25,000 see one miracle they say oh no he's not here to save us from sin he's here to save us from rome it would have been pretty Frustrating that they just totally missed the point, totally misconstrued what Jesus said. And as I was preparing this, it reminded me of like a funny story. I don't know if you'll find it funny. My wife doesn't find my stories funny. But uh, there was a comedian, uh, Billy Connolly. Some of the older people will probably remember him. Um, he shared this story. He was a Scottish comedian. And he shared this story about this Scottish sailor, very like nationalist, very proud and patriotic, which you probably would be if you were serving. Like he was a sailor who was serving in the navy, and he he his ship docked in uh, a city in China, and as he got off the ship, he went to a local tattoo parlor, because as a sailor in the navy and a patriot, he wanted to get a giant tattoo on his back that kind of expressed his love for Scotland, his country, and he wanted the words "Scotland forever" at the top, and he told the Chinese tattoo uh, the tattoo artist. I want Scotland forever at the top and underneath I want a thistle. And for those of you who don't know, a thistle is kind of like a flower. It's the national flower of Scotland. Um, bit of trivia. And this Chinese tattoo artist was like, thistle? What, this, what's, what, what's a thistle? He's like, oh, he's trying it's got like a bulb, it spikes. You know, Give me your paper, I'll draw it for you. And so he does his best rendition of a thistle in For those of you that don't know what a thistle looks like, it's like a plant. It's got like a bulb and little sprouts sticking out. And so he shows this to the tattoo artist. He's like, oh, thistle. He's like, yeah, yeah, thistle. And so he spends the next few hours tattooing this man's back. And Billy Connolly, uh, when he shared this story, he said, so this man got, the sailor finally got his tattoo. And there's someone in Scotland, a Scottish sailor in Scotland right now, who's got the words, Scotland forever at the top of his back and a giant pineapple. On. <laughs> the tattoo artist totally misunderstood what the sailor wanted. And in the same way, these, these, these 15, 25,000, they've heard a masterclass in terms of preaching about what the kingdom of God is meant to look like. And they've totally missed the point. Jesus preached a kingdom, a coming kingdom, salvation from sin. But all these people wanted was salvation from Rome. It would have been agonizing to see this. And so verses 46 to 47, it said, After he, Jesus, had taken leave of them, he went up the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus' response to frustration, stress, busyness, it was to go up a mountain, and pray. You know, last week I mentioned that, you know, the wilderness, the last week's setting was the wilderness, and the wilderness to God's people, I explained, was symbolic, because the wilderness was the place where you connected with God or reconnected with him when you needed help. We saw that it was an echo of the Exodus, because just as these 5,000 were fed in the wilderness, God fed manna, His people in the wilderness in the Exodus. Now, in the same Exodus event, we also find that not just the wilderness, but mountains hold symbolic significance. Because in the Exodus, Mount Sinai is the mountain. It's the mountain where Moses encounters God at the burning bush. It's the mountain where Moses receives the Ten Commandments from God. It's the mountain where Moses communes and speaks with God. And so if the wilderness, wilderness was a place where you reconnected with God, the mountain was the place where you got to converse and speak to God. And so almost like an echo of Exodus, Jesus, having left the wilderness, goes up the mountain where he spends time in prayer. And he prays on the mountain while the apostles are in a boat trying to get to Bethsaida. And Jesus must have picked a good vantage spot on the mountain because uh, the passage says in verse 48 that he was able to see see the apostles while they were praying, or while he was praying rather. It says that he saw them, he saw that they were making headway painfully because the wind was against them. Now to give you a bit of context, um, the apostles, their task that Jesus gave them was to get in the boat, get out of here and head into town on the boat. Uh, if they went by foot, I'll probably guesstimate, but it probably would have been like 30 minute, a 30-minute trip by foot. Um, and so by boat, it probably would have been similar, if not fast. I don't know how fast rowboats go, but I'd assume it would be about the same, if not quicker. But the passage says that they were really struggling to make any kind of progress to get to Bethsaid or get into town. And it says that they struggled until the fourth watch. What is the fourth watch? Um, the fourth watch, watches were, were like not watches, but like watches, like watching, like a watchtower watch. That was how uh, the Romans divided time after 6 p.m. And from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., from evening to, you know, the crack of dawn, uh, they divided this 12-hour slot into four quarters. So 6 to 9, 9 to 12 a.m., 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., and 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. And so the fourth watch was this final period before dawn from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. They were struggling up until the fourth watch, which meant that when they left the desert at 6 p.m., for the next nine hours, they were struggling to get to a place that was 30 minutes away by foot. And as much as, you know, I criticize the apostles because when we read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I've mentioned that they appear a bit slow like a bit dopey. They're not the brightest of individuals, but you have to give them credit because up until now in Mark's gospel, they've had like a a dog-like obedience to their master. Anything that Jesus did, no matter how weird or strange it was, they obeyed. They didn't procrastinate. They didn't question him. They just did everything the moment they told him to do it. And it seemed that the more they obeyed, the more difficult their life became. Do you remember the first time they told, or Jesus rather, told them to get into a boat? We saw a few weeks ago, they get into a boat and they enter into a mega storm where they almost die. And it was because they obeyed Jesus. And in obedience, having survived this storm, they go across the sea. They reached their destination. And what was the reward of their obedience? The reward for obeying Jesus was that they landed in the middle of the night in a graveyard. And if that wasn't bad enough, a crazy, naked, demon possessed man screaming at the top of his lungs. Comes running towards them. And I explained, I've had a naked, crazy guy running towards me at Stratford before. It is terrifying. There is something about someone being naked running at you that just makes it so much more terrifying because you don't know what to do. This was the reward for their obedience. Even their mission trip that they just came back from. What were the parameters and the rules of that mission trip? You're not allowed to take anything. No spare change of underwear, no spare change of clothes, nothing. So you might be sweaty, you might just be filthy, can't change, your, can't change your outfit. What you're wearing, that's all you got. But they don't procrastinate, they don't question Jesus. And even in today's passage, they obeyed Jesus. They got into the boat, to head into town. And what was the result? What should have been a 30-minute trip? ends up being nine hours of them rowing, making no headway. They must have had incredible cardio. Now, sometimes we have this assumption that obedience leads to success. Uh, But for the apostles, obedience just seemed to lead to frustration. It was their obedience that led to them, led them rather, to this predicament. Nine hours in the water. uh, And at the same time, while they're in the water for nine hours, Jesus has spent nine hours in prayer. He's been praying for nine hours whilst watching over them until the fourth watch. And then he decides to come down the mountain and go for a walk onto the water. And it's quite intriguing how the passage describes the way Jesus approached the boat. Because he doesn't walk to them. It says his intention was to walk past them. And I think it would have been quite comical. Because you've got on one side the disciples, 12 disciples, each with an oar in their hand, rowing with all their might. The wind blowing, and because the wind's blowing, the waves are probably a bit you know, really choppy, the boat's rocking back and forth, they're tired, they're exhausted, and then they look out of the corner of their eye and they just see Some guy in their peripheral, defying the laws of physics, unfazed by the wind and the waves, just going for a casual stroll in the evening on the water. And remember, it's the fourth watch. It's about 3 a.m. It's pitch black, so all they could see was just the silhouette of some guy walking on the water. They don't realize it's Jesus yet. And so the passage tells us that they see this silhouette of a man and they think it's a ghost. And verse 50 tells us that they were terrified. Now this time, it's not a mega storm that causes terror, but Jesus himself. And when witnessing his terror, Jesus gives them a threefold response because Jesus' response to their terror is, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And we're just going to pause here for a moment because I want to point out a few things. Firstly, uh, I've mentioned this multiple times. It probably you might probably sound like a broken record. The miracles that Jesus performed, the purpose of the miracles was to reveal his identity as the Messiah as the Lord our God. When Jesus multiplied the five loaves and two fish for the 5,000, it demonstrated his creation power, which is a power attributed to God. When he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead earlier on in our series in Mark, it demonstrated Jesus' authority and power over life and death. And in Walking on Water in today's passage, it, it explains his authority and power over creation in a way That's described throughout the Old Testament. Job 9 verse 8 describes that only God, only God is capable of marching on the waves of the sea, which is exactly what Jesus is doing today. Everything, everything, all the signs, all the Old Testament prophecies, it was all pointing to the identity of Jesus Everything that the apostles had witnessed, the purpose of it, the signs, the miracles, it was to point and reveal who Jesus was. But it's crazy because the apostles don't get it. They've seen all this, but they still don't get it. And we know this because the end of verse 51 and 52, it says, and they were utterly astounded, but they did not understand about the loaves because their hearts were hardened and it's interesting that Mark uses this word hardened because if you've read through the scriptures you know that that word hardened is a word used to describe the heart of God's enemies people that reject God and so it's almost like Mark is saying you know all the proof has been given to the apostles all the pieces of the puzzle have been given to them to put together and see the big big picture that Jesus is the messianic king the son of God but it's like they got to that final piece of the puzzle to complete the picture. And we're like, nah, couldn't be. No way. There's no way that Jesus is God. But that changes in today's passage because there's something very special about this threefold response that Jesus gives to their terror. This take heart, it is I, do not be afraid because it is I, that central part of that threefold response, it is I in the Greek. The rendition is ego, I me in the Greek, which literally means I am who I am. Where have you heard that before? Jesus declares ego, I me, I am who I am. And it's an allusion to the Exodus. And in alluding to the Exodus, it proves that everything else that we've seen in chapter 6 that pointed to the Exodus wasn't a coincidence because ego imi is a term that was well known to the Jews because it was a term that appears in Exodus 3. It's the name that God gives to himself. Because in Exodus 3, Moses goes to God and he says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent sent me to you, if they ask me what's your name, what am I going to say? And God says to Moses, tell them, I am has sent you. I am who I am. And so in a sense, if we look at that threefold response again, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. What Jesus is saying is take courage, don't be afraid, because I, the Lord, your God, am with you. And sure enough, having made this declaration to the apostles that he is the ego I me, the I am who I am, not only does the miracle of walking on water affirm his declaration, the ego I me, but the very fact that when he gets in the boat, the wind stops instantly, that affirms that he is the ego I me, the God of creation. And it leaves the apostles astonished. But that's not all. Because if, like I mentioned, we collage the details, of the other gospel accounts we find in matthew's gospel that they experience a turning point after this miracle because remember up until this point they've totally missed who jesus was to them he was a great teacher a great rabbi a great mentor who was capable of multiplying food performing exorcisms but that's all jesus was to them a great rabbi and a mentor But in Matthew's Gospel, something interesting happens, a very important detail. Because Matthew's Gospel, it says that those in the boat, after Jesus gets in the boat, those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. They worshipped Jesus. And for Jews, any faithful Jew, they know that worship is for none other than God alone. So it seemed like they were finally gaining some grasp and understanding that Jesus was more than a miracle worker. He was more than just a great preacher. He was the Lord God of creation who had the power and authority over creation. And they worshipped him. And that's how today's passage ends. And I pondered a lot as to what to put forward uh, in the next part of the sermon, this this application, observation, the so what part of the sermon, because uh, there's a lot of practical things that we can take away. Uh, but I decided to do something different today. Uh, and so instead of something practical and like an application point, uh, I wanted to make observations of what we can learn about Jesus from today's passage. The first thing I want to point out is that Jesus according to today's passage it's quite clear that he was a man of prayer. There was a, there's a fame well, there was rather he's not, not alive anymore but there was a famous American evangelist called R A Torrey. He's written some phenomenal books. If you ever get a chance to go to Kurong, uh, look up Torrey, T-O-R-R-E-Y. Uh, he's written some amazing books on prayer um and he wrote after studying the prayer life of Jesus in the gospels he made the following observation and he said and i quote he said jesus prayed early in the morning as well as in the night he prayed both before and after the great events of his life and he prayed and get this he prayed particularly when things were unusually busy he prayed when things were unusually busy and this particular observation, if you think about it, it's so countercultural to the way we view prayer today, isn't it? Because in the 21st century, busyness for Christians has become a reason not to pray. My schedule is too busy. I don't have time, so I won't pray. But interestingly, if you look at the life of Jesus and Christians throughout the majority of Christian history in the last 2,000 years, Busyness has been a primary reason to increase your time in prayer, not decrease it. The great reformer Martin Luther was quoted to have said, I have so much to do today that I must spend at least three hours in prayer. Otherwise, I won't get through it. Even in today's passage, remember everything that Jesus has gone through up until this point. He would have been exhausted tired. He's had non-stop ministry from the moment he called his apostles. And even his trip into the desert, that was meant to be his opportunity for rest. But it ended up ended up turning into a preaching marathon because he preached from morning to evening. Then he performed the miracle. And then he sent his apostles away. And then he disperses the crowd. And so finally, he has time alone to himself to rest. But what does he do? He goes up the mountain. He goes up the mountain to be alone with God in prayer. Not just like a 10-second prayer that he lifts up to heaven. Nine hours in prayer. In the midst of his stress, exhaustion, the busyness of life, Jesus understands the necessity of making time to be alone with God in prayer. Jesus understood that life and prayer for the follower of God have to inextricably be tied together. Even, you know, if you think about it, of all people in humanity that shouldn't have had to pray, you'd think it would be Jesus. But even in his sinless humanity, the perfect God-man Jesus Christ understood the necessity of prayer if he was going to live a life in accordance to the will of God. And so if the perfect man Jesus Christ saw that prayer was necessary that it's not negotiable. How much more should we be treasuring and setting a time to be alone with God? How much greater is our need that even when we're tired, even when we're busy, to be getting alone with God? Now, I'm not going to lie. Establishing a routine of prayer is not easy to begin with. If you want to pray nine hours, if you just leave this building today and be like, "I'm going to pray nine hours, it's not going to happen. It's like someone going to the gym, but like, I'm going to bench 100 kilos from my first session. It's not going to happen. It's not easy. And the reason it's not easy is because Satan hates us communing with God. Satan hates a praying Christian. He will come and interrupt and hinder, do everything to hinder you from praying. He'll leverage your sinful nature in the most filthy ways possible. Satan does not play fair. He knows your weaknesses and he will leverage every single one of your weaknesses to stop you from praying. He will lie to you about prayer. He will tell you, and I think he's the one that created that culture, you're too busy to pray. He will lie to you and say you're too busy to pray. You're too tired. You're exhausted. You need some rest. Pray later. But you know what? If you discipline yourself to press through, and especially during these times of busyness, stress, stress, exhaustion, and times of hopelessness, if you push through and make time to pray, you will find that some of your most sweetest moments of fellowship with God will be created. Some of the most precious memories and experiences and encounters with God will be created when you pray during these times of life. And I don't just promise you that because I studied it from the scriptures. Any person that's prayed during a season of busyness and exhaustion will tell you as a first-hand testimony, not something they heard from someone else, but personally first-hand, that there is something special about approaching the throne room of God in prayer when you've got nothing left in the tank. I promise you that. And it's something to think about. Because when we understand that Christ was a man of prayer, It should lead or trigger a desire in us. We will never be able to pray the way Jesus prayed. But if we're going to be like Christ, you know, we romanticize what it means to be like Christ. If you're going to be like Christ anywhere, be like him in prayer. And if you're struggling to establish a discipline of prayer, it's not easy. It isn't. What greater way than to come to our prayer meeting in June. 7.30pm, we'll give you the details. What a great way to start your discipline in prayer by coming and praying together with your family at FLM. So Jesus was a man of prayer. Uh, Next point. I've only got two points. Uh, Next point. A deepening knowledge of Jesus leads to a deepening worship. A deepening knowledge of Jesus is what leads to a deepening in your worship of Jesus. Now, one thing we noticed through our study of Mark's gospel is that prior to today's passage, the disciples learned a lot about Jesus. They hung out with him from the moment they were called. Every second, they were by his side, watching and learning. And yet, they constantly failed to grasp his true identity. They understood that he was a great preacher, great exorcist, a miracle worker. And they knew enough about Jesus to be able to go out on a short-term mission trip and emulate the way he did ministry. But in failing to grasp the true identity of Jesus prior to today's passage, it meant that they never truly worshipped Jesus, which is the whole point of all this. And that's actually a humbling reality that we ought to think about when we reflect on where our hearts are at. Because what we learn in the apostles is that you can look like you're a part of God's kingdom on the outside. You can be serving in church. You can be pouring yourself into ministry. But it's only through a true encounter with Jesus and a growing understanding of who Jesus is. It's only those things that ultimately lead you into a deepening worship of him. And that's what we find in today's passage. Because as Jesus approaches the boat, the disciples hear that divine declaration: Ego I me, I am who I am, I am the Lord God, and I am with you. They hear the divine declaration from Jesus that He is God, that He is the perfect God man, He is, you know, God incarnate. And they see that they hear this declaration that He's God and they see the proof that he's God, that he's walking on water, exercising authority over creation, and the moment they get, or he gets in the boat, the wind comes to a stop. And when they hear the declaration and see the proof, for the first time in their life, something starts to click. Because in John's gospel, in his account, John tells us that they started worshipping him. Why? Because they finally understood who it was in the boat that was standing before them. Now, this isn't to condemn anyone, uh, as I reached the conclusion of my sermon, uh, but more an encouragement as your pastor and as your brother, um, as you reflect upon your own hearts. Maybe you go away this week and you read and meditate on this passage again. But when you look at worship in your life, your personal worship of God, where your heart is as you pour your heart out to God in worship, do you find that your worshiping, worship is deepening from day to day and week to week? You know, I mentioned uh, a good habit that I learned growing up was to prepare your heart for worship on Sunday from Saturday night in prayer. Do you prepare your hearts for worship? When you think about coming together as an FLM family, is it something you anticipate? You come to church on Sundays looking forward to a true encounter with the risen King. Is that something that crosses your mind and stirs your heart as you make that journey to church? And going beyond Sunday worship, Do you recognize that when you wake up each morning, whether you're a student or an employee, whether you go to work or school, do you have a deepening understanding that the way you conduct yourself at work or school, the way you work and the way you study, that everything that we do in every second of our day is a form of worship to the king? Has your understanding of worship been growing and deepening as you've walked with Jesus? Or have you had long bouts of seasons where it felt like any kind of growth has been stunted? We haven't really given it a second thought and your heart for worship almost feels cheap. If it has been stunted, then maybe a bit of self-reflection and re-evaluation is needed. Because a stunting in the deepening worship of God usually occurs because our knowledge, our deepening knowledge of God has been stunted. And if that's the case... What better way to remedy it than coming to prayer meeting in June, which is in a few weeks. Oh, I'm not joking. I'm being serious. Prayer is such a great place to begin. Prayer is what you use to call on the Holy Spirit, to illumine your eyes, to read the Scriptures and understand the Jesus that's revealed through the Scriptures. Prayer is where you approach the throne room of God and commune with him. So those are just the two observations I want to leave you with. The first is that Jesus was a man of prayer. That really should shape the way we view prayer. He was a man of prayer. And finally, a deepening knowledge of Jesus should lead to a deepening worship of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you For the faithful accounts that we have in the Gospels of the ministry of Jesus. We thank you for the significance of events like this where it's more than just a display of power. It's more than just Jesus walking on water. But we see so many dimensions to Jesus' life and ministry that should shape the way we commune with you. That we wouldn't cheapen this gift of prayer but that we should treasure it. That we would not give in to the lies of Satan when we feel we're too busy to pray but like Christ and the countless saints of God that went before us. That busyness should be a primary motivator to not decrease but increase our time in prayer. And so, Lord, I pray for myself and for FLM as a family that if any of us are going through a season where we feel our deepening understanding of worship has been stunted, that you would allow by the Spirit of God for us to diagnose where it is that we're going wrong. And through prayer and through a deepening knowledge, of Jesus, that you would bring healing to our soul, so that we can create precious memories and moments with you in the place of sacred prayer. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.